0: 400 and something or other I'm not sure what uh, But this is with my buddy Kyle Tierman You've met him before I don't know if this is his third or Fourth But he's a frequent friend of the podcast He's got a show called The Kyle Tierman Show um, Which is uh, Really easy to remember Because it's his name And I give him shit about that but uh he's he's a good guy he's one of my favorite people as i think i just said he's a big wave surfer he's an adventurer he's uh patagonia sponsored professional athlete he's um you know he's he's a badass and he's humble and he's smart and he's earnest and he's working his way through life with a lot of intention and discipline and uh Consciousness, which I really admire. He's not blundering through it. He thinks about every step he takes. Uh, and he's gone through some interesting stuff recently, which we talk about um, in terms of relationship stuff and, um, you know, just life. I think he just turned 30 or 31 recently. So, you know, everybody's going through a lot of shit at that age, including this guy. Um, I am in a place, I'm in Spokane in a buddy's kitchen. I just recorded the video roma for july Uh, so those of you who support the podcast uh, on my website uh, thatchrisryan.com or tendentiallyspeaking.com can log in and uh, view that video if you don't see it yet it's probably because we're editing it and it'll be up in a day or two i'm not sure whether this is going to go up first or the video is going to go up first but in any case uh, within a few days you'll be able to see that if you're a supporter of the podcast. I talked about a bunch of stuff on that uh, video thing. I talked about uh, prostitution, and uh, there was a question about, you know, I- introducing boys into sex via a prostitute and, you know, cultural traditions in which that happens. And um, talked about uh, a little bit about politics uh, what else do we talk about? Oh, God, I had the whole list right in front of me a second ago. A big part of it was um, my feelings about the Chris D'Elia situation. Those of you who aren't familiar, uh, he's a stand-up comic and TV actor who got caught in the crossfire of uh, this whole Me Too thing. With, uh, he was accused of grooming a young woman. Grooming, what the fuck? Grooming, what a weird word to use for that. Um, anyway, I expounded at length uh, on my uh, my feelings about that situation, so I won't do it here. Uh, that's available to everyone who supports the podcast, even as low as two bucks a month uh, via my website. Okay, uh, I guess that's it. I'm I'm going to keep this short and sweet because I want to get this. Up and away before I leave Spokane because uh, I'm going to be out in the woods for the next week or so with no access to Wi Fi. So I want to uh, get this up there and uh, check in with you. Kyle's an amazing dude, uh, and I really am happy to have made his acquaintance through the podcast, as most of my friends seem to have come into my life. Um, I'm going to play you out with a tune that also came to me through the podcast from a guy named Alan uh alan p he doesn't really say what his last name is interesting uh, he says uh a long time listener uh just want to let you know dig the music you share on the podcast as a guitarist musician i appreciate you giving artists a place to be discovered uh, he talks about some of the people that uh he's heard on the podcast he says okay his band the Mighty Olas." Hola is wave in Spanish. So I assume it means the mighty waves. So that makes this appropriate to play on an episode with a big wave surfer. Un sorferro de olas grandes. No sé si sorferro es una palabra en castellano. Okay, I'd like to share with you a, a song called Your Wicked Ways. Sounds a bit like if Quentin Tarantino met up with Dire Straits. And the guy's name is Alan P., and uh so you can find them if you're into their sound you can find them on soundcloud just go to soundcloud.com and search mighty olas o-l-a-s all right uh alan p very humble guy doesn't even say his last name but the band is the mighty olas and this song is your wicked ways hope you enjoy this conversation with my buddy kyle tierman be sure to check out his podcast the kyle tierman show uh which is really excellent he gets some a lot of his guests are surfers and you know people in the sort of aquatic world uh spear fishermen and that kind of stuff Um, but he also gets writers and uh you know sex experts and all kinds of interesting people on there kyle by the way is uh cruising around i might see him soon he's uh Left Santa Cruz and uh, he's been cruising around in his Subaru, uh, Jody Forrester is what he calls her, and uh, decided sort of on the spur of the moment to spend the summer on the road. So he's, I think, in Bozeman, Montana right now, going to be cruising around Montana, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, Colorado. So if you're in that area and you like the cut of this guy's jib and you'd like to meet him. By all means, get in touch with him and uh, maybe you'll get Kyle and Jody Forrester in your driveway at some point. He's uh, he's a lot of fun. I can vouch for him. All right. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Kyle Tierman. And I will be back in touch with you as soon as I come out of the woods. Yikes. See you soon.
1: Wicked ways are all I know Like an angel said from down below You haunt me everywhere I go Your wicked ways I've come to know I've come to learn
0: I'm here with Kyle Tierman, also known as KT. What, do you have any other nicknames when you were growing up? My friends called me Uma Thurman. Why? Tierman Thurman. That's the level of acceptable cleverness in Santa Cruz, California, yep, ladies and gentlemen.
2: Exactly.
0: Uma Thurman, That's that's all it took. <laughs> it had nothing to do with... Your amazing body, your incredible attractiveness, your acting chops.
2: Nope, none of that. Just uh, you get one thing, and if you react poorly to it, it sticks. <laughs> that's it. Exactly. It not, has nothing to do exactly. with the cleverness. It's just if yeah. you're like, no, I'm not. Yeah. Like, yes, you are forever. The quiver in your voice. <laughs> exactly. Give it away. Yeah. So
0: you're Irma Thurman. All right, that's good. It's, I mean,
2: as nicknames go...
0: It's not bad. Yeah, there are worse. There are worse.
2: So have you uh, been preparing for this interview for quite some time?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, I I do a lot of research. um,
2: On all the guests. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) I'm doing jump ropes. I'm very nervous about this. Thanks. Me too. So here we are. uh, Kyle Tierman, those of you who have listened to this podcast before know who this guy is. How long have we known each other now? About four years. Four years. And how many episodes have you you've been on my show? Maybe
2: this might Three be. Three or four times that I'm and that and you've yeah. been on mine four or five. We've done a few co hosts. So so we we like interviewed an annual thing. Jim Fadiman together. Our well, co host right. ones are fun. I enjoy yeah. those.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we just did one recently. With uh, Dacher Keltner. Dacker Keltner, uh, which I don't know if that's already gone up or if that's coming up after this. I don't know. Uh, we're both in the process of, of banking a bunch of episodes <laughs> because of the world... Uh, he's sort of falling down about us here And uh, we happen to be in the same place at the same time So we thought, let's
2: get something down This is pretty retro, doing a person-to-person I uh, podcast I haven't yeah. done this in a while Very nostalgic
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a throwback
2: You know, the, the online episodes where I'm doing them um, on the internet Are not nearly as fun But they force me to become a better question asker because there's not as much back and forth ranting like we can do right here. So it forces me to ask a really precise question and then shut the fuck up. Mm, yeah. It's like high altitude podcast training. Yeah, it, it puts you in a, I
0: mean, I guess sort of another way of saying the same thing. It, it creates a different kind of energy where it's more interview than conversation, which is what I really don't like about it. Um, but I agree. The only way to make it work is to minimize the back and forth which means you have to ask a bigger question and then just sort of sit back and let the person deal with it for a while.
2: And then you need to prepare for those interviews too, which is not your forte. I don't think you need to prepare necessarily.
0: I just, I I can still, my preference is still to allow the conversation to go in unexpected, spontaneous places. Um, So I don't feel like I prepare questions beforehand more than i used to i I normally go into a, a you know a podcast with maybe three or four things that i want to talk about that maybe i've written down or maybe i just know like okay i want to talk to this guy about this this and this uh if we get to it and if we don't it's fine
2: there's a fine line i feel between preparing and allowing for extemporaneous magic to happen
0: yeah, and I opt, you know, if I'm going to air, i I'm going to air toward the ladder. Yeah. Uh, I,
2: first, I like to allow space. Yeah. So I have a story about preparedness. Uh-huh. Um, a number of years Did ago. Did you prepare this story, by the way? No, I didn't prepare. No. That. I, I actually made a point not to prepare for this interview. Ah. Yeah, because I want magic to happen right now. All right. But my story about not preparing ah. is that I was once invited to give a speech in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, about environmental activism, and they were paying me a good portion of money to do it. And I had given this same speech to a bunch of other schools before, and I thought to myself, I want to do something new. Like, I want this to feel alive and fresh. So I only came up with a few ideas that I wanted to talk about. It's an hour-long speech, um, and I knew the ideas, but I didn't really practice it word for word, and I didn't know where I wanted each idea to end. Yeah. So I'm like, this is going to be great. I've been podcasting a ton. I can rant for hours. There's no problem with this. Audience comes in, doing my jump ropes in the green room beforehand. Get up there. Tell a few stories. Get to my last story. I look down at the clock, and I've been talking for 34 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be a 60-minute speech. Yeah. So I start to panic. And I say, uh, hey, any questions? <laughs> No questions. Of course. The bookers sitting in the front row, like looking a little perplexed. I'm like, okay, well, uh, you know, one question that I get a lot about my work is uh, you know, how I uh do the interviews when I'm on these documentary trips and like it's like I wish I would have had an app on my phone that plays crickets. <laughs> it was a cricket moment, right? Yeah. So I know they're disappointed. I'm disappointed. My speaking agent booked this thing for me, so she's going to be pissed. I leave there, and that night, I'm going to fly out the next morning, and I'm just like, I'm going to go get fucking wasted right now because that was horrible. (laughs) I'm in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, on a Tuesday night. It's bitter cold, and I'm out getting drunk by myself, and I'm going from one bar to the next feeling horrible about myself. And a Toyota pulls up beside me, and someone throws a burrito at my face, <laughs> slaps me in the face. They go skidding off like woo! And I'm just like standing there, cursing the gods, and I vow that I will never do a speech unprepared again.
0: Hmm. And did you get feedback? Was it as bad as you feared?
2: Yeah, they were not happy with it. Really? Yeah.
0: Just because it was obviously you were kind of phoning it in and, and didn't care, or
2: because you didn't fill the time slot or what A big part of it was that I didn't fill the time slot, yeah yeah, they had booked the auditorium for that amount of time, and i didn't the, a big thing that I didn't do was was um, rehearse my speech and time it. Mm. Because so often you'll think that something will take a certain amount of time and it's like half the amount, especially when you're giving it a speech because you're talking really quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's something you have to really learn from experience that when you're on stage, you talk a lot faster than you think you will. And yeah, you can end up.
2: You went off script on your uh, TED talk, though, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The TED talk's a whole different thing, though, because. Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of the opposite thing where they were so insistent on me having it down word for word that I started to feel like cramped. And I I don't like doing it that way. I like doing it the way you did, where I just have some ideas. Um, And I guess I've been doing it so long at this point that uh, I don't know, I almost I almost get off on that uh, feeling of like tightrope walking. You know, like if I get nervous right now, I'm going to lose my focus and I'm going to be standing out here in front of a couple hundred people and uh, I'm going to shit my pants, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I, I have a, uh, I don't know, I'm panicky. I've had to get over my panickiness quite a bit. Like whether it comes to like getting ready for surfing big waves, I'll get like jittery and my palms will start to sweat. Or this last year starting to do a lot of open mics with comedy. I need to feel like I've, I have it down word for word so that I can relax into it and let the new ideas potentially come.
0: That's probably one of the biggest uh, differences in the way you approach your life and the way I approach my life. Right. We're talking about that the other night you were from your perspective, you said something about how I was, uh, like the most disciplined, lazy person, you know, is that what you said? (laughs) Yeah. And, and I was like, what are you talking? Where's the discipline? I don't see any discipline at all. And, um, Like, it's interesting how, you know, there are four perspectives, right? There's how you see yourself, how I see you, how I see myself, how you see me. There's always that, you know, the unknown quality there. But, um, yeah, you are a guy who you know you have routines you're very much into like the tim ferris like i do these three things every morning i you know eat this way i fast i do this i work out I, you know i have my workout 16 minutes and it's only, it's actually eight minutes but there are these two minute intervals and you know if you have timer on your phone you travel around with a fucking dumbbell and you you know you're like tight you got it tight right <laughs> And my my whole thing is no no, no loose. I like it loose and um, no nothing. I'm not saying anything's better or worse, but it's just our the style that works for us.
2: There's the way that I see it is that it's um, there's this difference between organization and chaos, and you're constantly switching between one and the next. And, right. and I feel like chaos is where a lot of the creativity can come. And that's where that's why like leaving. Time to relax can let all of those great ideas flow. Right. We were talking about Archimedes the other day when he was trying to come up with the formula for volume and he was stressing himself out. So then he decided to take a day off, get naked, take a bath. As he did, he felt he saw the water rise and that's when the formula for volume came out and he ran down the street saying, uh, Eureka, Eureka. Right. Right. I got it. For me, I I think that I, I am. I try and discipline myself so that I can get things done efficiently so so that leaves time for creativity. I think that like busyness is the um the great nemesis of us being able to like lead lives that we want to it just it fills up so quickly that if i don't get good if I don't get really good at saying no and having certain routines um I just fall into chaos, and I also find that, I mean, we we can just get right into it. About six months ago, I got out of a really serious relationship that I was in for six years, and I mean, I've ruptured my appendix in Mexico, almost died. Like, heartbreak's way worse, <laughs> like, for sure. I mean, it's like, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to get through, and My habits and routines were what I fell back on. Right. It wasn't that I could just come up with this great idea. Okay, I'm going to like get through the day. Like I would literally wake up in my bed moaning from heartache, like in the fetal position, not sure that I could get out of bed. But I had a routine um, when I'm in Santa Cruz, I'm lucky enough to live near the ocean and Um, One of my routines is I wake up and I run down there and I will do a a morning swim. Right, And it was all that I could do to just like shut my eyes in bed and be like, get up, Kyle. Get up, Kyle. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Get up. And I would force myself to get up and I'd put my board shorts on and I would run down to the ocean and I would swim out there. In Santa Cruz, the water's very cold. And... I would literally scream at the sunrise out in the ocean by myself. And it was like all that I could do to push against the intensity that I was feeling. And if I didn't have those routines already set in place, I could very easily see myself um, falling off into really self-destructive habits.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if there's something in the word chaos, um, you know, because you you set up this um, sort of spectrum between organization and chaos. And uh, when you said that, I thought, yeah, I don't see chaos as the opposite of organization for me. I see it more as um, an organization or relaxation or you know what i mean not something necessarily threatening or destructive um you know people ask me like how long did it take to write this book or that and there's no way to answer that because so much of the process of you know whatever creativity i've been able to harness for me happened when i wasn't working you know it happened it's like i don't know You know, people talk about working out, you have to rest and let your muscle recover. It's part of working out, is resting, right? Um, And for me, mentally, that resting phase was a lot (laughs) more fruitful than the working phase, I think. But just sort of being, you know, aware that I'm focusing on this particular subject or this particular book or this particular thing I need to say somehow. And often as I'm falling asleep or as I'm waking up in that, hypnagogic, hypnopompic state, you know? Is that a word? Yeah. I forget which one's which, but one of them is on the way into sleep and one of them's on the way out of sleep. Hypnagogic and hypnopompic. Um, Yeah, those states where you're sort of half aware. Uh, That's when, you know, a funny title will occur to me or an interesting way of phrasing something. And, you know, it's important to have a notebook next to your bed so you can get
2: that shit before you forget it. Um, that would always happen to me right when I was going to sleep. Yeah. I would, Yeah, and yeah. I would have a little voice memo um, app on my phone. I'd write down the funny idea. Yeah. It's so strange, though. Like, you you told me once a a metaphor, uh, one of your profound meta- metaphors that you blurt out in between sips of beer. You said life is like um, holding sand in your hand, and if you squeeze it too tightly, it'll slip between your fingers. Hmm. And that always stuck with me. I can't um, imagine
0: that was original. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds pretty hackneyed. It sure does. <laughs> I hope I didn't take credit for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it is. It's. It's. I don't know. Sand, water. So many things. Like the. I, I mean, getting back to you know love and relationships and heartbreak and all that. It's. I I think it's such an helplessness is a really important thing to learn, to accept. You know, because. I think so much of being young is about getting control over yourself and over things and over your, whatever, your habits, you know. Um, But then it's like, I think Miles Davis talked about how, uh, you know, you have to learn the instrument perfectly before you can start letting go and just jamming. Right. Uh, And I think there's something uh, in life in general along those lines. like. You, you challenge yourself, you work hard, you do, you know, you, f- you fucking work on yourself and you get through. And then if you're lucky, you get to a place where you can start unlearning and forgetting and relaxing and just let things flow because you've already done that legwork, you know?
2: Right. It's like that story of Picasso where he's sitting in the restaurant and oh, he's doodling right, right. on the napkin and the waiter says, hey, can I have that napkin? And Picasso says something like, oh, sure, $50,000. And the waiter says, oh, it took you, 2 minutes to draw that doodle and he said no it took me a lifetime. Yeah. 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 And I th- I feel though that um I'm at a point 30 years old where I do really need to push and it takes a lot of effort for me to get into those spaces of creativity. It doesn't yeah. just flow. And that it honestly might be an IQ thing. Like when you were a kid it seemed like a lot of school was easy for you. You Got things really quickly And I don't I never really experienced that I don't think it's IQ I, I suspect you might have Like a
0: touch of an Asperger Kind of Cognitive uh, Situation
2: I've had uh, girlfriends tell me that Yeah,
0: <laughs> No You f- you focus on things Very intently And I've noticed that you As you focus you can lose Awareness of what you're not Focused on which is you know, again, there's no value judgment. That's amazing, uh, you know, in the way that it's amazing. But it's also a, a debility in a sense because you can sort of lose the the outside picture.
2: Yeah, uh, I think that it also comes from. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to keep repeating things that you've said to me off air that I think are <laughs> good. But you said that, like one of the nice things about getting older is, you know, how your life turned out.
0: Oh, yeah. You remember saying that? That's a huge relief.
2: Huge relief. Like, I don't yet know how my life is going to turn out. And I think that a lot of what drives me is um, fear of slipping into this life that was given to me. Um, I was born in Santa Cruz... You know, grew up with a friend, good friend group of surfers. When I'm in Santa Cruz, like people know me. Life is easy. It's very comfortable. And I feel my ability to think deeply about the world and come up with new ideas shrink when I get in those comfortable situations. Mm-hmm. And that terrifies me. It it really yeah. terrifies me to not push um, and be like, the person that I know I'm capable of being. And it was a real big shift in my life when I met you. Like, when I first came on your podcast, then you started introducing me to other writers and real big thinkers and and folks that really dedicate themselves to iconoclastic ideas. Um, I felt something fundamental shift in me. And I've been um, pushing ever since I met you to try and get myself into states of consciousness where I can come up with a, a cogent thought um, that has some value to the world. And I just, I know that if I'm not putting a ton of effort in and if I don't have those routines, like waking up every morning and going out into your van and, and writing for two hours, then I won't get there. Like, there's no reason why it should. Work out if I'm doing the same thing that everyone else, all all my surfer buddies in Santa Cruz are doing. Yeah. Um, so that's the place that I approach it from, you know. And and then and I set up these little rules for myself. Like when I'm out there writing, I, I'll say um, I'll set a timer and say I'm not going to get up for two hours. And it doesn't matter if I just sit here or or if I write. But um, I think that there is an element at this stage in my life of just really pushing towards building the skills that i want to build um and and ending yeah. this relationship you know with a really lovely smart beautiful partner um you know a number of months ago was like that that was the big, the hardest like pushing against something experience i've ever had
0: yeah let's unpack the word comfort a little bit um because one of the things that i feel uh you know, I, I, it's weird. I don't have a lot of friends my age. I have a lot of friends your age and friends older than me, but there aren't a lot of friends in my, like, you know, between you know, 45 and 65 that I've got friends in their seventies and eighties and I've got friends in their twenties and thirties. And, um, but as I move toward that older group and have that kind of perspective, one thing that I keep coming up against with at least with the people I want to hang out with who are in their 20s and 30s who are extraordinary people I think uh, is that I see you guys with all that anxiety about how's my life gonna turn out and I I fucking felt it myself for years and I want to say to you like god let go of that let go you're gonna be fine right because because character is destiny, and your character is already set, and your character is going to lead you to make hard decisions, like the one you're referring to in your personal life, or it's going to lead you to um, feel discontent in ways that you don't necessarily recognize, but that will like push you to change your situation. So. You said earlier, like, I, I'm struggling, I guess, against comfort, the comfort of being in Santa Cruz with people I grew up with who aren't expecting much from me. And I'm just surfer guy and I could just be surfer guy. And that feels dangerously comfortable to you. But I would suggest that maybe it doesn't feel comfortable to you, right? So that you're not actually fighting against comfort. You're trying to find comfort. You just haven't defined it. The new one like comfort and laziness aren't the same thing right Right. like if you're lazy and you and you have a voice in you that's saying dude you're wasting your fucking life that's not comfortable that's why people who are in that position drink so much and you know maybe you're taking opiates and like that ain't comfort that's numbness right so i guess what i'm trying to say is like if there's one kind of uh I don't know if it's advice or just something I feel is like young people who are afraid about how their life is going to turn out. If you're responding to that voice, if you're actually, um, you know, trying to, it's not, Yeah, I'm not articulating this. No,
2: no, I get it. I I, I actually do get it. It's that, um, There, it is seemingly comfortable, but really you're, you have a deep discontent. Yeah. And there's an itch that you need to scratch. And, um, yeah, I agree with you that it's, it's comfort is a true release of that anxiety. Yeah. And, and I feel that I can't release that anxiety unless I'm engaging in ideas that are really pushing me and, um, Right, and that's that's what it takes.
0: Yeah, so I guess I frame it as I'm seeking comfort, right? As opposed to I'm trying not to let myself be comfortable, right? I'm seeking a, a higher kind of comfort, which is feeling okay with myself and feeling okay with my life and. Um, I mean, I, the, the most depressed I've I've been heartbroken and depressed with relationships, but I think the most like really truly depressed I've been was when I quit my job in New York, which was really hard because it was paying me all this money, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, you have such a great situation! You lucky fucker! Quit that! Went to Asia for a year and a half, for two years, or whatever, and then that guy hired me back to." Run this construction thing. And I wasn't even running it. I was his representative, which meant I sat in this fucking shack. And if somebody had a question, they'd come and be like, hey, you know, that door delivery, you know, some of these doors are fucked up. Can you look at this? I mean, that would happen like twice a week or something, you know. It was the most comfortable job I've ever had. All I had to do was be there. And I did, I could show up late. I could leave early. I could take a two hour lunch. I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. I was getting paid a fortune and i hated my life and i hated myself because i felt like no dude you went out in the world you saw what was real and you let him lure you back to this and now you're sitting here for money you're trading your life for money and you know better so I was disappointed in myself.
2: Was it just money, or was it also status?
0: No, it was just money because I didn't. The people I had status with didn't give a shit about me, right? They were like the construction workers and the architect, and like, okay, who who's this you know boy wonder here? Like, but they didn't know me or care about me.
2: One insight that I've had uh, that's that's related to that is I think that there's a difference between. Um, you know making decisions that you feel are, you know, f- fulfilling some potential and and are is going to get you to some status and making decisions in a process oriented way. Um and that's something that I've struggled with a lot like gr- growing up um I had a a fair amount of success pretty early on with environmental activism stuff, like 18 years old, winning all these environmental awards, and uh, people uh, talked a lot about my potential, you know? I'm like, oh, you're gonna do big things, Kyle. You got so much potential. And I felt then that if I wasn't in a certain space, like status-wise, then I was failing myself. Hmm. And it was this really kind of... um, upside down way of looking at life which was very um, achievement oriented rather than process oriented um, and that's something that I've had to really work through and now I find that when I um, like w- when I do something like like write and it's just something that I'm trying to get good at it's not actually so, so that I can go be like some big writer one day or, or I don't have those ideas that of um, writing a bestseller or something. I just want to get good at the thing. Hmm. And there's so much uh, in life that can distract you from the craft. And one of the biggest lessons that I've had from doing a podcast and interviewing a lot of people that have uh, gotten very good at their, at their craft is that they focus on that and they really put blinders on to all the other bullshit. And that's been a, that's been really um, helpful to me. And I and I actually was this year, like after after the breakup, um, we we did a couple therapy sessions with um, this woman named Sarah Russell. If anyone out there is looking for a really good relationship therapist, happy to put them in touch. And she told me something that was really insightful, which was which was exactly that. And I hadn't defined it that when you're in a position where people see you as having a lot of potential it can make you feel incomplete in some way because if you haven't achieved that yeah. you can become very hard on yourself and to shift that perspective and ask yourself what really satisfies you can be helpful um and it's it's helped me be a bit more easy on myself
0: yeah i i think uh Americans in particular have a weird relationship with uh, satisfaction and contentment and comfort and these things we're talking about because American society so often defines those things in really negative terms, right? Like, how often do you do you hear like, you know, the key to success is never being satisfied? Really? Like, what kind of success is that that, where you're never satisfied? I thought the whole point was to be satisfied, right? The point of, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, the, the, the point of good sex is always needing more. Like, yeah, that sounds addictive to me. Right. That doesn't sound like a good sex life, right?
2: Never satisfied, no days off. Like, Let's that's get how to you do it. 4
0: a.m. Yeah. Okay. If your relationship with food is never satisfied, you're obese. You know, like if your relationship with success is never satisfied, you're, you know, ambition obese. It, it's, it's not a healthy state. The healthy state is get what you need and then stop and enjoy it. Whether it's food or sex or success or whatever, fame, money, right? If you can't enjoy it, what the fuck was the point of getting it? Yeah. Like I that's always been like my deep question about uh, success in life. Like And LA in particular. <laughs> Well, just America and L.A. is kind of a refined uh, solution of America in some ways. Um, But yeah, it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange relationship with things to feel that contentment is the enemy, you know,
2: it also makes you miss life.
0: Well, that's it, right? You miss the whole you fucking. M- you point. miss
2: the whole show. How much of life are you are you ruminating about something that you could have done differently in the past or somewhere that you want to get to, and you miss the whole situation? You're not you're in m- the present. You're not in yeah. the present moment, um, yeah. and that's that's a real skill, man. That's why I'm drawn to Buddhism and and psychedelics is because they. Um, Make your present situation a lot more vivid right and i think that one one thing that you that um can be helpful in at least has been helpful for me in uh being able to feel more vividly the moment is to get myself into new situations so during this pandemic right uh I couldn't really leave Santa Cruz. Um, had all these grand travel plans that uh, some called Corona nineteen uh, or COVID nineteen put damper on. But uh, where I grew up was it was in the beach community. So the places that I would surf it can become very routine. The people that I see and it just turns the day into so much routine that I was I would miss those little vivid details and uh, a couple years ago I started hunting you and I have been on hunting trips and there turns out there's really good turkey hunting in Santa Cruz but it's in the mountains and it's a completely different community this is maybe 20 minutes away from where I grew up but the culture's different like the kids growing up there in high school they were all into like dirt biking and Hank Williams Jr. (laughs) shooting shotguns and hunting and we were listening to Sublime and going hanging out down the beach and through this pandemic, I was doing a lot of turkey hunting, which is a totally new experience for me. Like I'm I'm still a, a fairly new to hunting and that uh, the beginner's mind of going into a new environment, um, I think, can draw out that kind of uh Perception of what's happening in the moment in a way that can be really helpful, and and not everyone has the opportunity to go, you know, travel to Thailand and have their reality blown apart, and right. you know, and have that get them back into the vivid moment. Um, I think that you can just find more detail within your community, and it's a healthy exercise to try.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it can be so something so obvious you know like we have a friend who's been visiting oliver who's an auto mechanic and just going out with him and you know letting him explain how a fucking engine works and what this is and how this connects to that it's like it's a world you know we're all it's right under our noses but uh you, what do you think about your experience you broke up six months ago now yeah was it uh And most of that time has been in this lockdown. Do you think your experience would have been different if this hadn't coincided with a a pandemic? I mean, would you have gone out and like fucked yourself silly or like what would you how would it have been different?
2: I'm sure it would have been different in, in some ways.
0: Because some, it's hard to distract yourself, right, when the world shut down. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, one really uh, difficult idea when you're going through a breakup to get over is that, um, that you're never going to meet another person like that.
0: Right. That's or, already... The thing that's sort of at the heart of your despair, yeah, and now it's like at least not for the next six months, you're not yeah
2: like- <laughs> yeah, the world's like that was true, what you thought, so uh yeah i i uh I think that that idea metastasized a little bit more right uh, yeah, but I also don't know that that distracting yourself is very helpful during those those times um. I mean, it's, it's so intense. Like, I, I had never experienced heartbreak before. And it is, like, your heart really hurts. I didn't know that. Mm. I always thought it was a metaphor. Yeah. I don't know what the deal is. But it's like there's a pain that is so, so real. Uh, like, I felt some days like the only way to get through it was to focus on the raw sensation of it. Mm-hmm. The same way that I would with an injury right like yeah. feel don't, into, don't it away
0: from it and yeah do it. and
2: yeah. uh and the only like th- th- as I said, like jumping in the ocean uh was really helpful and and um physical experiences like in my body were the only real tactics that I found to be useful in that situation because you can't really intellectualize your way out of that feeling hmm. um and it was you know one thing that was really hard too is that i couldn't uh see people who are outside of my house for those number of months um like i have a good relationships with my mom and my dad and like i couldn't um yeah i couldn't, couldn't see him like i i have this fucking uh well, oh, we've gone this far in the Kyle therapy session. I'll just keep going for it. Like there is this time uh, during the pandemic when I went over to see my dad, who is an awesome guy. And uh, my relationship with him has really deepened over the last few months because he's good at not trying to fix things. He's he just can sit there with you and be like, yeah, dude, that sucks. Let's let's be here in the moment. But uh, I couldn't hug him, right? Mm. So we're down at his house, and he's got this big tool shop. He's a big fix it guy. And uh, we're in his tool shop, and I'm standing six feet away from him. Prepared, and I was getting ready for, for this trip, and I, I came over to get some camping supplies, and I started crying. And he couldn't come over to hug me. And there's this leather tool kit that he has. I literally buried my face in leather toolkit and started crying as he was standing six feet away just telling me, hey, man, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. And I, I thought, man, if there's a metaphor for this uh, experience in my life, like going through a breakup during a pandemic, it's mm. hugging a fucking toolkit, <laughs> <laughs> sobbing into it. Is there a part of you that
0: that's watching yourself from... The future and saying like okay Kyle you know go through it uh savor the experience even oh, yeah. though it's bitter but like it's not as big a deal as you think it is
2: I don't know that I would say that it's like a don't tell me it's not a big deal because it's a big deal <laughs> I'm not a pussy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, what, you know, I think of myself, uh, I think of those situations in the moment as someone who enjoys telling stories, which is weird to, to admit, but like in an experience where I'm crying into a toolkit, part of my mind is thinking, this is a good story. Right. And it's it doesn't, it doesn't make the experience inauthentic. It's just the way that I see my life. I see it in these various stories that can exemplify feelings as, as do you, right? Like you had your, your funny moment when all the fires were happening in Topanga and you had to evacuate your house and you thought your house was going to burn down and you had already come up with the story and the metaphor of a house that burnt down.
0: And the only thing that I really lost was my, uh, avn award right which i imagined finding in the rubble like melted down and then i would save that and mount it on a pedestal
2: <laughs> wind switch house never burned down, Didn't burn down. <laughs> Damn it. which right.
0: was actually a disappointment yeah yeah because it would have been a better story i mean there is no story now unless it's the story about the story that i was hoping would happen but didn't which is very meta right
2: (laughs) but i do think about my life in terms of story yeah and through this experience uh i i thought all right how do i want to be able to look back on this pandemic and talk about what it was really like for me and how can i have that be as coincident with what actually happened as possible because you can always just lie, you know? Plenty of people do that. They, they tell stories about things they did or the ways that they acted in a situation, and you're like, that's not true at all, actually. Mm. But to try and live a life that is um, as kind of co- coincident with the stories that you're going to tell about it as possible is uh, a way that I... It helped me get through this experience. So, I, for example, I thought, all right, well here's a pandemic I'm gonna do a bunch of turkey hunting uh and I'm gonna go out and then I'm gonna visit Chris and I'm gonna get a lot of writing done and I want to be able to kind of look back on this period as having done those things not you know slipping into despair and drunken masturbation and uh you know Did that too, but you know, have the most, have most of it, you know, be, uh, have you come to the point
0: in your life yet where you start to masturbate and just kind of give up just like, eh, (laughs) fuck this. Are you still like, I'm this far going to finish it?
2: Well, I, I stopped drinking recently. Dr- giving up on masturbating would happen a lot more when I would be drunk. Oh, okay. Like, um, right. you, you, know, you come back from a night of drinking, and right. you're like, oh, I'm going to jerk gonna off, and out. you're like, ah, like, my arm's getting sore, and I don't think anything's going to happen here. <laughs> All right. but, but I'll tell you, man, dude, jerking off through a breakup is really helpful.
0: jerking off through anything is really helpful i think the world would be a better place if if dudes jerked off more and and didn't do plan b you know make that plan a hey you want to get drunk and go out to the club and pick up some chicks or stay home and jerk off stay home and jerk off trust me it's a better move (laughs) yeah every time
2: Then ask yourself the
0: question (laughs) exactly if you still want to go out after have a drink with a friend fine
2: it's like that scene in there's something about mary where uh he's like To to Ben Stiller he's like tell me you drain The pipes before a big date man He's like what are you talking about he's like yeah you Gotta go in with a clear mind (laughs) so He jerks off and he's like Where'd it go and then Mary Shows up and it's it's hanging off of his ear
0: Oh it's on his Jesus Ben Stiller Yeah Um what were we talking about, Matt? I lost the thread there. We're before the jerking off stuff. Uh, we, were,
2: we were talking
1: uh, about. Oh, oh, I know. Tell, I, go for
0: it. I was going to ask you if you. Uh, well, well, the thing about the story is interesting because I, I, as you said, I feel that too. I, I tend to, while something is is occurring in my life, I often notice the narrative quality of it. Right? Like, wow, oh, this is coming together as a narrative arc here. This is interesting. Um, and and there are times when I feel a little uh, apologetic about that in the sense that like, oh, you know, I can't even live my life without turning it into a story. It's not even over yet and I'm already. But on another hand, if that's the way your mind works, then that's actually a way of being more immersed in the experience because you're also, so if you're like an artist and you're, you know, watching a sunset, you might be thinking like, uh, I, wow, this could be a great painting. I know what I would use, you know, mixed together to make that particular color. And oh, there's even a little bit of green there. Like, wow, that really sets it off. You could argue that's distracting you from the experience or you could argue that's actually part of the experience for someone whose mind works that way. Right. To notice that second level um But then I wonder, like, like I'm imagining you, like, okay, going through this heartbreak, you know, I'm gonna reassess my relationship with women and rethink all this stuff, and I'm gonna go hang out in the woods, and I'm gonna call in turkeys, and they're all gonna be these horny males who think they're about to get laid, and I'm gonna fucking blast them with my bow. Like, have you thought about the irony of Uh, you, (laughs) this horny dude? You know, like sort of using the horniness of other males
2: against them, oh yeah, and turkey hunting is uh is unique in that you call the animal in, so the way it works is you sit out in these redwood trees at the base of the redwood trees, really well hidden turkey Turkeys have eyesight that's three times as good as humans, so you need to stay dead still in camo, and you set out decoys and you set out um what's called a tom, which is a mature male turkey. And those are the ones that you go for as well as a hen, which is a female, a younger male turkey is called a Jake. And what will happen is you use this little scratcher as you Mm. sit silently with these decoys out in a field and you'll scratch it and it'll make the sound of a hen, which goes. And then if, The male here, uh, here's you, a Tom, they'll go, (laughs) and then you'll go, and and turkeys are big fucking animals. I don't know if you've ever seen like an adult male turkey. It's a Mm. big damn bird. And when they're strutting out, they have these tail feathers that are... Just majestic, right? So they'll come strutting up to you uh, with their tail feathers in full display.
0: And they think they're going to, like, intimidate this other tom who's right. there.
2: So they, they're they going to intimidate another tom and fuck the female, right? Meanwhile, you're sitting back there in, in the woods waiting for it to get close enough. And it, so many things can go wrong. A, you can go out there and the toms aren't calling because the weather's bad. Um, it's, it's a lot like... Uh, Like humans too, like they come out when it's sunny and nice. And when it's freezing cold, they're, they're not going to, uh, get out of the redwood trees. They're just going to stay up there and roost. Um, are they up in the tree? Yeah. Yeah. They They, can fly fly up. up. Yeah. They can, they can do it are called bursts. So they can't Mm -hmm. fly long distances, but they can burst out. And, uh, if it's sunny and you can get a Tom to come in and get it into range with a bow, it's also a really difficult animal to shoot because the feathers are big, but the vitals on an animal that size are, are pretty darn small. But you can get it coming in and you can it, you can hold your position and then shoot it. Um, a lot of times what happens is with a bow at least it won't die immediately so it'll run away and it's counterintuitive but you don't want to chase an animal right after you shoot it because then they'll get an adrenaline rush and they'll burst off even further so you want to do is you want to shoot it and then track where it goes and then you walk up five or ten minutes later and hopefully it's dead but I, yeah I went up hunting most of the time with uh with my housemate, and we had many conversations about that. We were like mm. dude he, this guy's us yeah it's it's us it's like this horny male that is exposing himself this is like a you know A
0: bros before hose faux pas here, right? You know, you're really going outside the
2: poor form, indeed. Poor form, (laughs) yeah. But so, and what
0: do you have the bow already cocked when you're waiting for the turkey to come in, or can you do that movement without scaring them?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can draw back uh, close to the time that the turkey comes in. So Mm -hmm. the way it works is you will usually be hunting. You can hunt by yourself, but if, if you're hunting with a buddy, one of you has a range finder. Right. And the range finder will tell you the distance that the turkey is away from you. And then the buddy who has the bow will set their pin to the turkey. So there's a, let's say a 20 yard pin, a 30 yard pin and a 40 yard pin. And they'll set that distance and they'll draw back. And when with compound bows, you draw back with, something called release so your finger isn't actually on the string um it's on a, a, a release that hooks into it and then there's a trigger on it that you slowly squeeze down to let it go um so you can you draw back really at the last second and then you stand up and you're hopefully in a good position to shoot it quickly but there's a lot of like zen mindfulness that comes in with hunting because. It's a, a really intense situation that you don't... But you need to kind of use that intensity and calm yourself because you, it's really easy to do what's called punching the trigger where you, you punch it and your bow moves enough mm. that then you'll miss the shot. Mm. So what you want to do with a good shot is squeeze the, the trigger really slowly so that it surprises you when the arrow releases. Right. Um, Same
0: thing with a gun
2: yeah exactly
0: yeah
2: but i yeah i shot a turkey and um it's great experience i i also don't think that a hunt is really over until you're sharing that food with friends Mm. there's something that feels complete about it when you you have the experience of hunting an animal you shoot it um you smoke it uh for hours and hours you know brine it and then share it with friends there's something uniquely calming and complete about that and one thing that was really cool this year about shooting a turkey is um you can get their fan right you save their fan you cut it off and then you put uh borax on it you cut off the meat and borax will then cure the remaining meat on it and you spread the feathers out on uh on cardboard and you pin it out and then you let it sit for like a month and then it will cure with the feathers out in a fan. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I gave, I gave mine away to my mom for mother's day. She was stoked.
0: What do you do with it? Put it on the wall? Yeah. It's just
2: a really beautiful fan that you can use. And, uh, you can also use it for hunting actually. Um, because turkeys will like a, a, Tom will see a spread fan and it will make them come in. So I would imagine that back in the day, before we had you know plastic and rubber decoys to sit out in fields, people would just use the fan mm. to call the the turkeys in.
0: Right, right. So what do you, uh, you know, one thing we've talked about with this whole hunting, uh, how it's um, you know brings you into an intimate relationship with death, right? And of course, getting back to the you know connecting this to the romantic thing you've been going through the breakup that's a form of death there's a grieving process and all that and then to connect to what we were saying earlier, the whole thing about young people like, freaking out about how their life's gonna turn out it's it's always interesting when you're when you're in a situation where you're comparing uh something that's actual to something that is um Certain, uh, but not concrete. So, in other words, you're looking at your life and you, you're you like, okay, I know there are other women I'm going to be in love with. I know there are other relationships I'm going to have. I know, you know, you're not in a situation where it's like you're never going to feel love or loved again, right? You know that intellectually. But... You're comparing that thought with the memory or the presence of an actual human being that you know intimately. And that's always such an interesting and strange place to be because, you know, part of you is like, no, if it's not real, I don't believe it. But the other part of you is like, dude, there are a lot of things that, you know, Come to pass that you're not capable of experiencing right now, but you know they're going to come to pass. Like, you know, you're going to get old unless you, you know, die tragically when you're young.
2: Or just keep hanging out with Peter Atia could I help reverse some aging there. Oh,
0: you think he's going to save you? Really? Yeah. yeah. Good. Good <laughs> luck with that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, anyway, I don't, I don't really know I what agree. my question no, is. No,
2: no, no, I, no, I, I agree with you. I think that there's, R- relating to death and a grieving process and trusting that process like i i found hunting to be remarkably helpful for me through hmm. this because there's this range of emotions that i was experiencing really on a daily basis like i would go out and hunt i, I think i probably hunted 30 days out in the santa cruz mountains this hmm. through the the pandemic and it was either by myself or with my housemate Yeah. and there's a range of emotions from boredom to um, to f- you know a certain amount of fear you know when, when the animals coming in it's like you, you really don't want to fuck this up intensity to elation to then like meeting that moment of being with a turkey when it's dying like the more time you spend with these animals they the more you respect them and I've gained a huge amount of respect for, for wild turkeys through this season to then cooking that food and giving it to other people and feeling this real, like, finally um, gratitude. And it can, I think that that is why being out in nature can be really helpful, For us is because we see these processes from beginning to Mm, end at a different frequency. We see plants that are growing and then dying. Right. And it's like nature shouting at us like, hey, this is you too, dude. Right. It's not forever. Um, And that was, yeah, as I said, like being out physically in my body in nature was um, remarkably helpful just to have that lesson again and again.
0: So I think one of the great challenges of life, uh, and again, I'm sure this isn't original thought at all, but is learning to um, really appreciate something while it's happening, while being aware of the fact that it's not forever. So I think, For a lot of people and probably for me for a long time, the knowledge that it's not forever stopped me from drinking deeply from that experience because I was already anticipating the pain of loss. Uh, and then at some point, uh, I'm thinking about my childhood when I moved You're
2: moving a around yeah. a lot, yeah.
0: So I would like I, – I didn't really want to get close to people because I was like, yeah, you know, if we become good friends, I don't know, it's going to hurt worse in a year or two when I move, right? Um, and, then, and then when I – and that made me like very pedantic and closed-hearted and kind of maybe cruel or I don't know, but emotionally distant. And then um, – You know when i was traveling and doing psychedelics and sort of you know a lot of that scar tissue was melting away i felt like the knowledge that this isn't forever this isn't even for 48 hours maybe um actually opened up and allowed me to be more present right and like forced me to be more present
2: was was there a time when that shifted for you
0: uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I, I couldn't name a day, but there were definitely, um, there was a period in my life in my early twenties, you know, that whole, I mean, it's you and I are recording this Memorial day weekend and, uh, Memorial day weekend was that first spring in Alaska in 1983 when I got in trouble and went to prison and all that shit happened. <laughs> And that was, you know, that period of my life was when everything was changing. I was pivoting. I I pivoted away from wanting to be a college teacher and teach literature and blah, 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 to like, no, no, I'm going to experience stuff. I'm not going to teach things. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to go out and the world's not dangerous. These people are wonderful. People are kind. But, you know, I'm the douchebag here, like everyone. So there, there was this definite shift of what do I want my life to look like at that point? And I think this thing that we're talking about was a big part of that, where I felt like I don't need to protect myself. Nobody's trying to hurt me. In fact, people are trying to help me. People are. And, and the only thing that's stopping them from reaching me is me. They're trying to reach me. They're trying to, these older people are giving me good fucking advice. And the only time I don't hear it is when I'm, too full of myself and you know i think i've got it all figured out that's the you know when you're young and you think you've got it figured out that means you don't the only people who have it figured out when they're young are the people who say i have no fucking idea those are the smart ones and that's what i meant earlier when i said character's destiny when when i meet someone in their 20s who's like dude i have no clue what's going on here i'm just trying to figure it out I say, you're going to have a great fucking life, no matter what. Don't worry about it. It's the people who are like, yeah, dude, I, you know, <laughs> I got it. I got it. I'm 24. I know what the fuck's happening. Like, oh, you're in trouble. Yep. You're going to have yep. some fucking slaps come in your way, you know?
2: Yeah, you don't want to become too to certain of yourself. Did you feel in your 20s um, and you started, when you started to see life in a more experience-oriented way that you were also aware of working to build skills that you knew would serve you later on, or was it just lily padding from one experience to the next? Because no,
0: it I, was intentional. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, there was, and, and it was that summer in 1983. I, I can't do the math. How, how long ago was that? 30,
2: Someone's screaming it out. Seven know.
0: years, maybe. Yeah. I think it was 37 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, at the end of that summer, I was like, okay, And I've said this before on the podcast, like uh, that was a time when I said, you know, 83, that means I was 22 years old and I was going back to finish my last year in university. And I was like, okay, until I'm 30, I'm not making a commitment to anything. No woman, no career, no grad school, no medical school, whatever, nothing Uh, until I'm 30. I'm not going to. And the reason was that I felt that whatever I end up doing with my life, First of all, I'll make a better decision if I wait till I'm 30, uh, because right now I don't know what the fuck is going on, and I'm just starting to figure it out. And number two, whatever I end up doing with my life, I'll be better at it for having taken the next eight years and... Exposed myself to serendipity and adventure and calamity and you know all the shit that is out there dalliance, right? As many dalliances as possible, um, but yeah, it's like you know it was like deciding I'm not going to get married till I'm thirty, and trusting that who if I get married or you know commit, the person I commit to down there, you know after the next eight years will be better for me than it. And I'll be better for her than anything I could commit to right now. Were
2: you focused on the skill of writing and storytelling and aware that you wanted to develop that through those seven or eight years?
0: You know, I had a difficult relationship with that stuff, uh, which you kind of touched on when you were talking about how if if people tell you too much about your potential when you're young, you can start to feel like you're always never going to measure up, you know. I had that experience with writing. Like my dad, you know, a lot of ways my life is my dad's unlived life in, in some respects. Um, I think we all sort of have that relationship with. Did our you want to be a writer? In some ways. My dad did. Yeah. He taught literature. He was teaching literature at Penn State when I was born. And he, he loved it. Um, And my dad was a very artistic kind of oriented person. um, Very, uh, he was a great singer and played piano and, and, you know, he just always noticed beauty. He was very good at that. Um, But yeah, my dad wanted to be a writer and he wanted to teach writing and, but he always told the story about, you know, maybe his fifth or sixth year. Uh at Penn State he he real like he was just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it was different kids, same story. And he was like, this isn't really fulfilling, you know, this isn't I want to be a participant in life. And so he got into writing um for political candidates. Uh he was um, you know, left-wing civil rights kind of uh I wouldn't say an activist, but he, he was interested in that and he would like help people get elected at the local level who were, um, you know, good sort of liberal. Uh. And then he got into writing, you know, more corporate stuff and ended up a vice president of public affairs at big companies and, you know, like a sort of, um, you know, raising a family, making a living, successful, but it took him away from the, artistic aspect of writing and more into the just you know communications angle um but anyway you know i had a thing you know i wrote sort of naturally when i was a little kid and my parents you know were just super supportive and especially my dad and he would like sit me down like you know the way you structured this story was really interesting and the uh, the foreshadowing here and i'm like eight right like i wrote a story of two wolves or something and you know and he was like and the intensity of his support and enthusiasm kind of turned me off and scared me i think because of that like oh wait a minute i'm just trying to have fun here like i don't need somebody's unfulfilled you know life goals i don't want to carry that shit around and then I got it from teachers. I, I had a, a situation this was in college. Um I was doing this class called uh it's the history of science, and the teacher was Marty Kelly, really, really cool guy, super smart guy. And it was it was great. It was like it was two terms. The first term we started with Galen, right, which who was like the or one of the like early Greek philosophers. And, and he had this idea that the earth was suspended on water. It was like a, you know, and then we sort of just traced over two terms, like up through Einstein and the special theory of relativity. And like, so human thought, like what, you know, what do we think life is? What do we think the universe is? And why, you know, so good. Anyway, uh, finals uh, came And like, I, I knew this guy, right? Like I knew I hung out with professors in college. I was that guy. And so I'd like shoot pool with this guy. And, and, um, and in class, like I was always there. I always talked. I, you know, uh, he knew I'd read everything. He knew I was totally like into it anyway. So the final comes and it's like one of those blue book things where you're going to sit there for two hours and you know answer three of these five questions and the questions were like trace the concept of time from ancient greece through einstein right and i was like "Ah, dude come on like what is this this is this is to prove that we've been thinking about this and done the reading you know i've done the reading you know i've been thinking about this so this is an empty exercise so i But I had to sit there for two hours. So I wrote about the light coming through the window and the way it was striking this girl's hair in front of me and the bricks on the wall and the texture of the bricks and who laid those bricks and what they were thinking in 1867 when they were laying the bricks and the fucking Civil War had just finished or whatever the fuck it was. And I just like let my mind go and I just wrote the stream of consciousness shit to fill the time. And I turned that in. Right. And then like a week later, we had to go to, uh, it was like office hours and you would go and talk about the exam and what your grade was and all that. So I go into the thing and, and I hadn't spoken with him since I turned it in and he sat and he got up and closed his office door and he was like, Chris, dude, you're putting me in a weird spot here. And I, and I was like, yeah, but Marty, you, come on, you know, right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But you know, I also know that John Moffner read the shit and he did the test. He actually wrote it out. So how do I give you the same grade I'm giving him, right? That's not legit. And, and he's like, look, I'll give you an A minus, a a-, all right? Uh, I can't give you an A plus because he did the... And he says, but if you ever need uh, a recommendation for graduate school, I'm your man. And he said, but really, I think you should be a writer. Because, and he starts saying, like, he says, the hardest thing for a writer to find is a voice. I've been writing my whole life. I can't find a voice. He's like, you, you fucking have a voice, man. You don't even know it. And he starts crying. This is this, like, 65-year-old genius dude and he's like tears running down his cheeks and I just thought like this is both the most beautiful thing and the most horrible thing (laughs) you
2: know now I gotta live up to that right?
0: like you're giving me something so, so right out of your heart that's so sincere and so beautiful but it's heavy man and now I have to carry this around the rest of my fucking life really So my thing with writing was hard. There was a lot of um, letting go that I had to do. And the way I felt about it was like, you know, I felt like I'm a guy who's like six, eight, and people are saying, you should play basketball. (laughs) I was like, look, I'm tall. It doesn't mean I should play, and it doesn't even mean I'm good at basketball, right? I'm just tall, like whatever, I can do that, you know? so yeah it's weird and uh, so you're
2: like if I must write I will write about sex <laughs> I'll
0: write about sex and I'll write in a way that isn't really very creative in a way you know I mean I think I found a way in those books where I could write in uh, in my voice uh, which makes them more fun to read than maybe other books that are less playful or whatever Um, But I still haven't I haven't written a novel or short stories or anything like that, you know. Um, So, yeah, I don't know that that whole thing about encouraging kids. It's a tough it's a tough line because you
2: want to be supportive, but you don't want to set them up. Dude, tell me about it. My first year of college, I did that video about Bank of America financing that coal power plant and it was right in 2008. So the video came out and people were caring about banks and it wasn't necessarily a good video, but all of a sudden I was 19 and giving a TEDx talk and getting flown around the country doing environmental speeches and like winning awards and like people were telling me about my potential. And then for the next uh, six or seven years, I did the Surfing for Change series, where I was making these short documentaries about environmental issues, uh, and none of them were as good of stories as the first one. Mm. And I and I realize now the reason the, f- the first story was good was because I separated. I I took two novel, different worlds and combined them. Yeah. Right. B- banking and surfing. Who would have thought of that? Right. But I didn't know that that's why it was a good story. Yeah. So then the next video I was like, Oh, I'm going to do a story about plastic pollution. And people were like, okay, well that's not as interesting. Yeah. And I was like, I I was a gambler tr- who hit it big on his first go and then was trying to hit it again and again. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. And I think that it really, created this neuroses in me. And when I first came down to LA to to meet you four four years ago, I wanted to be a TV host. Yeah. I wanted to, and I was pitching this series around. And it was exactly what we were talking about earlier. I wasn't focused on what it was that I actually liked to do. I was focusing on this place that I thought I could get to. And what shifted for me since, since meeting you, right. Cause when I would go out and make these documentaries, what I really enjoyed doing was interviewing people. Right. I loved asking those questions and I loved then afterwards telling the story, like editing and figuring out how we were going to put this, this story of, you know, uh, plastic pollution in Indonesia together, Was really fun for me, but so much of it was not either of those two things. It was just get you know having the cameraman and you know setting up all the meeting and that's that stuff. You got to do a certain amount of that, but right around the time that I met you, I got offered uh, a slot as a freelance writer for a local magazine called Santa Cruz Waves, and they do um, magazines around town, and I pitched them an article. Called the end of the ride is pro surfing a dead end career, and it was a story about how I saw a lot of my friends and and myself included who wanted to be pro surfers growing up, and we didn't really see the writing on the wall that it was not going to work out for us, and rather than shift into a new job or career, we maintained. Um, Staying ossified in this identity of being pro surfers, even though it was not a smart way to be spending our 20s. And I, I wrote very honestly about how I felt that a lot of people were going to end up at you know, 30, 35 when their contracts were up with zero job experience. And I saw people who were then in their 40s and 50s who were homeless. Um I may have included an anecdote in the story, but out on the North shore of Oahu is where it's the epicenter of uh, pro surfing worldwide. And I have a buddy who's a firefighter who once told me a story about how he was at his fire station and his captain um, went over to him. And right below their fire station, there was a homeless encampment. And his captain pointed out to a guy who was very homeless. He said, you see that guy right there? He was on the cover of every surf magazine Hmm. there was when I was growing up. So I wrote this story and it was published and I had never had feedback on any piece of work that I had ever done. Like with the Surfing for Change series, the video that I got on that piece. Like Some people who were pissed off, others who were like, hey, thank you for for saying that. And um, writing and saying exactly what I fucking meant Mm. and going through it and editing it again and again and again... To, to put something forward that I was really proud of um, was something that I had never really felt. Hmm. And then that coupled with going down to LA thinking that I was going to do video meeting you, you introducing me to Neil Strauss and other writers who um, were really focused on the process of thinking deeply about the world and learning how to um, explain it was, Powerful for me and
0: comedians who are some of the best writers. That's it. Alive, right? right.
2: And that was that. Yeah. And that was what kind of introduced me to, to com- Yeah. That's people do not realize what amazing writers, comedians are. Yeah. They really cut out the fat and get down to the essence of that thought. So for me, writing was opposite from you because no one ever expected me to be right. a writer. And right. I still, like, I can go out and write without pressure because no one ever saw mm. me as that. But I I love nothing more than sitting in your big red van, just churning out shitty words and then, at, you know, 45 minutes, an hour in, like, coming to something that um, feels... Uh, just et- eternal and yeah. true, yeah. and and it's of a different plane. You yeah. know, like there's that book, The War of Art, and he talks about the muse. Yeah, and if you put that work in, the muse will eventually come, and that that space is is so special. And a lot of the the discipline that you see in me and the, all those routines, I feel are getting all of the shit out of the way so that I can get into that moment of truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's great. Um, Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. Like all the time, you know, I, I felt that weird pressure and aversion, but I was writing the whole time. Like when I was traveling, I kept journals And I was alone a lot, and the way I... You know, I'd be sitting in some cafe in India or Nepal or whatever, and, uh, you know, I'd write. I'd just sit there and write. It comforted me. So there is something... And, and I guess I was doing what you're talking about. It was it was sort of steeping yourself in truth, whatever your truth is that day, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're going through. And I'll tell you something that's weird. I I have some of those journals. A couple of them got lost, but I um, they were in storage in Spain. Last time I was in Spain, I found them and I brought them back. They're in LA, now they're in storage in LA. But I looked at some of them and it's so weird, dude. I was your age and I was writing about shit I still think about. You know, there were quotes I would like write in the journal and it's like some of those are quotes that I've like laid out on you or on the podcast or whatever. It's it's strange how I mean, I don't know what to think about that is like, have I really like not learned anything in 30 years or is it just that we find the things that interest us and we keep just going around and around with them? You know, like you keep dancing with that to that one song. It's so good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, starting a podcast was the best thing I've ever done, right? Because for a lot of reasons, but one is that I get to sit down with my heroes who are writers. And uh, I've talk talk about him ad nauseum, but had a chance to interview Matt Taibbi last year, who's probably my favorite writer. I think Taibbi and and David Sedaris are my two top guys that I really... I'm studying right now, like reading all of their work and figuring out how they do what they do. But one thing that Taivi said to me in the interview was that um, the power of psychedelics is that it removes you from that group think. Right. And as a writer, you really can't, you don't want to go into a situation having already written that story. And he says that one of the big problems that he sees with journalists today is that they go into the situation and pull the quote that is that already leads to the story that they know will they're going to write. They don't right. allow themselves that time to be surprised. Right. For me like one of the one of the reasons that I want to get a van, if anyone's got a van out there that they want to sell me like it's such a it's there's such a metaphor for that because you're removing yourself mm-hmm. from society and from that group think. And when I'm hanging with you and and we're talking shit, you know, in in late into the evening and we're out here kind of away from society, I feel those ideas come more frequently. And I know then that that's like my soul is on the right path, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's, I love that writing gives me the incentive to get myself into those situations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of the whatever routines or, or, that I set up in my life are really just incentive structures so that I can get myself into that area. And, and like, I freaking, uh, like, through this breakup, I, I quit drinking because I was like, I'm going to get so depressed if I continue drinking. So I, um, I wrote a $1,000 check to the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is ALEC. They're the um, corporate bill mill that came through with bills like um, three strikes, mandatory minimum sentences Evil for nonviolent. Incarnate. Yeah, we nominated them for three motherfucker awards last year. And I posted that, that uh, check on my wall and said, all right, Kyle, if you drink any point in the next year, you need to cash this check. So, like, You that's, need to
0: send it to them?
2: I need to send it to them and give them a $1,000. In the next year? Yeah, so I'm not drinking for a year. Wow. See, that's the kind of
0: thing I would never do. <laughs>
2: right.
0: Never. Not in a million years. I might be like, you know what? I'm going to do 20 push-ups every morning. And I might do it twice and then be like, eh, I don't know, my shoulder hurts. I think I'm going to take a break. So,
2: so I want to ask, ask you... About that idea of of searching for truth, yeah, right? because that's something that y- you are uniquely good at asking questions like, what if we did the opposite of what everyone thinks is true? Um, is that something that you were always doing naturally, or was that like a learned skill of of questioning those premises? You know, like
0: most things, I think it's probably a combination of both. You know, I think it's something that you have innate. Like I I was talking about my father earlier. My father questioned a lot. And like even when he was a corporate guy, he was the rebel he was the guy who would like come out of the meeting you know having told the ceo that he was full of shit and like you know and he was proud of that and i'd see him come home and he's like well he was full of shit and you know i don't care if i get my ass handed to me uh and uh so i grew up sort of like seeing the romantic aspect of questioning the received wisdom um But also like one of, let's say, here's the thing, right? Like one of my father's favorite stories about me as a little kid that I heard him tell many times. So, you know, what did that do to my psyche as a kid was we were in the car one day, he was driving me to school or something. And I think I was like six or seven and I asked him where trees came from. And he went through this whole thing about the seeds and, you know, the, they'd fly through the air or the bird would take them and drop them somewhere and then they'd be on the ground and then it would rain and then it would sprout and da da da. And, and he said, I sort of sat there for a few seconds and then I said, okay, but where did the first tree come from? And he was like, oh, you little fucker. <laughs> and then he was really impressed, right? That like I got to that question, right? And so who knows, you know, I mean, I guess it was innate to the sense, you know, to the degree that I, I asked that question, but then it was really nourished by his admiration and his telling that story. And, you know, who knows where these things go. And then with psychedelics, of course, that was a really important place for me to go and to, you know, for, through my 20s, it was like, I love this. I love this dissolving of conventional reality. Yeah, uh, you know
2: you know why you're a really good podcaster man well, you I... you just made me think of a, a an insight that i had never come upon that i'm a, i would tell you right now that i mm. think just is <laughs> representative of what we were I'm just I'm sorry talking we have about.
0: to go to a commercial
2: uh we'll be yeah, to- <laughs> yeah. So, so that's we'll, we'll that, get to so that that that's that next it. time yeah we'll get to that next time yeah so i come from a very creative family mm. um, my grandmother was a painter my grandfather was uh, a filmmaker uh, my dad is a filmmaker my aunt is a painter your mom's a filmmaker my mom is a filmmaker my brother is a filmmaker <laughs> my uncle yeah. is a production designer
0: right big time yeah yeah
2: um my dad i think is the most like, he's more, he has the some of the most raw creation of anyone I've ever met. Like, during the motherfucker awards, for example, like, he would come in and be like, We should make, a, like, okay, for the NRA, we're going to have this machine gun and there's going to be a dildo coming out of it. And, you know, like, he just oozes creativity yeah. in everything that he does, right? I, um, I told the story in this article that I wrote recently after I interviewed my dad on my podcast, um, about, uh, this time that he was interviewing Muhammad Ali for video, right? And uh, the, as he was sitting down for the interview, it was by the time um, Muhammad Ali had al- was already suffering from Parkinson's and he s- gave him this mirror and said, hey man, you should make sure that you're, uh, look okay for the interview. And Muhammad Ali picked up this mirror and it was a gag mirror and it started laughing at him. <laughs> and, and the whole room went silent. And my dad was just like, oh boy. And then Muhammad Ali started roaring, laughing. And my dad gave him the mirror and then Ali was showing the mirror to all these other people through the the rest of the day. So he's just that kind of guy. He's a really good dude. He, um, I, he made, he made a movie a a while back, like a, a narrative film called Steel Heel, right when I was born. And, um, Oh fuck it's hard to talk about but I, he he made this movie and it, my dad loves fiction and he loves making narratives did the movie um and then he got you know he had kids he had to pay bills he started doing uh videos for you know corporations and like HP and all all these big Companies that that really never like filled his his heart. He I, I know and he he talks about. Um, and he always had a really hard time saying no to people. Like had a really hard time making that space, that selfish space, so that he could enter that creative zone and really produce that work. Um, and I always was really hard on him for for not taking that space for himself and really like being selfish and doing it because I saw a lot of projects that wouldn't come to fruition. Yeah. And I have taken, I have seen that and have taken the opposite approach. So all of my, I think discipline and Mm -hmm. routine and selfish decisions come from a response to that. And I've never actually had that, thought until Mm. you just brought up your relationship to your dad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and in both cases, one of the people he would have had to say no to is you. Right. You know, same thing in my case. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing how our parents make sacrifices that put us in a position not to have to make that sacrifice, whether, whether consciously or not. Yeah, yeah, and then and then it's like any other kind of privilege. You know, we talked about this earlier. Like, if someone says, "Well, you you can only talk about that because you're privileged," okay, does that mean I shouldn't talk about it, or does that mean I have a responsibility to talk about it? Yeah, like what does privilege confer on you? Because people seem to use it as a scolding uh, technique, um, whereas I feel like. Yeah, recognize your privilege and fucking use it to try to leverage for people who don't have it. Yeah. Like, you know. And
2: be bold with your ideas. If you're the kind of. It's like wealth. Like, should we
0: pretend we don't have money? Like, no, use your fucking money to help people. Yeah, absolutely. You don't pretend you don't have it. That's a cheap ass rich person. And
2: if you live in a country where you're not in fear of persecution or being thrown in jail or killed for stating an idea that's too bold state it like that that you have an obligation to if especially if it's true in your heart this is what i was talking to lawrence lessig about on, on my podcast recently he said he um when he was a kid he was abused and what was so confusing to him was not that there was this abuser but that the other kids didn't stand up and say something and he said that that is the basis of the corruption that we see today in our democracy it's it's apathy it's people that see wrongdoing and are unable or unwilling to stand up against it Well the entire
0: sort of educational system of Western society in the United States anyway or maybe this is an overstatement but I feel like so much of what we're taught is designed to normalize, systemic abuse, right? We're taught to believe that someone has more because they worked harder and they're smarter, not because they're lucky, not because they were born, you know, into a family that had more, um, you know, you and I had did this podcast recently with, uh, with Dakar that you mentioned earlier that that's his research. His research is showing that people who, um, are fortunate, tend to create narratives justifying their fortune and, and, and you know, feeling that they deserved it rather than that they. So we take this and it's natural. It's part of human nature, but it's also part of human nature to be um, outraged at injustice. And Franz De the great primatologist, has shown that it it goes deeper than human nature. It goes into Langer nature and chimpanzee nature, and it's something we share with uh, other social primates. This this revulsion at injustice, even when we benefit from the injustice. You know, he's done. He and his associates have done research showing that, you know, when you give um, to unequal rewards for the same behavior to primates in, in contiguous cages, even the one who gets the better reward will start to refuse it because they see the injustice. They see that this isn't right. I'm getting a grape. He's getting a carrot. We're doing the same thing. This isn't cool.
2: Who was it that you um, were talking about with Brian Callen on your podcast about the guy who, who um, went against his own class he was this well-known maybe writer or philosopher, like good looking upper middle class guy. And, and he really revolted against.
0: Yeah. Fuck. I can't remember his name right now. I actually met him in person. Um, uh, yeah, he was a a famous intellectual in the sixties. He, he had a famous thing, uh, on the Dick Cavett show where he and Norman Mailer got into a big, like almost a fist fight on live TV. Um, shit, I can't remember.
2: Yeah, but I think that there's a real power in that if you recognize where if if you were born into a lucky situation, to be able to talk to the people who will listen to you because you have access to that. I mean, I and that's you know, what I do with with my shitty open mics is like I make fun of surfer bros, right? And our confidence, yeah. and like it's there is, and that's what Callan does, right? Like, he his whole comedic bit is making fun of the overconfident but deeply insecure male right and and he's reaching those people and some of them don't get the joke right right? but there's that's the that's the power in comedy is you're kind of slipping it in in a way that's really attractive and they're laughing about it and even if they don't agree with you whereas if you just try and give it to them straight no one's gonna listen to yeah so do you
0: um you know, by the way, FDR was another one of those people, right? Who uh, you know got the Social Security, mm. uh, got uh, Medicaid, Medicare. Like, all well, I guess Medicaid and Medicare probably were Johnson, but um, you know, sort of instituted uh, programs that helped poor people. He was born into one of the wealthiest families in the country, so you know, turning against your class and using your privilege to help those without it is yeah that's pretty fucking essential
2: my my mom used to run a homeless teen center when i was a kid and she'd take me around to uh give blankets to the homeless right and one thing she always taught me was you don't need to give homeless people money but you got to look them in the eye
0: yeah yeah you're right that's that social isolation is more devastating than Lack of shelter and food sometimes. What
2: yeah. was the question you're going to ask?
0: I was going to ask, you know, we've been talking about writing and, and searching for truth. And, and what you've said, you've been talking about the writing that you're doing. Like, I know you have a, a gig right now with Mudwater that you're working on. And you work for this magazine. You're doing freelance stuff. You're, you, know, you write comedy. Do you write about what you're going through emotionally?
2: Yeah, I have a I have a private journal locked away in a safe that uh, I very clearly just talked about openly on this podcast.
0: <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to try to steal
2: it. No, I, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing no, about no secrets. plagiarizing my breakup notes. <laughs> that's important material. It's bullshit! I gotta get well, my hands you on know, it. One thing that's been really helpful for me is uh, is writing comedy about yeah. the breakup. Uh-huh. Like I uh, that that allows me to. Smirk at it I mean And that was really The power that I, I felt Was in The motherfucker awards That we came right. up with Really it was right. that You Have You have a choice To decide How you want to feel About the suffering In the world And To be able to Experience that suffering And morph it Into a laugh Is Beauty I feel like it Exemplifies Human p- potential And I I don't think that I'm exemplifying human potential in my, my comedy by any means, but like I would, you know, come up with, I came up with a bit about my breakup, about how like when you don't, when you, when you go through a breakup, you don't just lose your girlfriend. You also lose your grocery store. So like it, we, you can't shop at, uh we can't shop at Trader Joe's anymore. Like I have to shop at Whole Foods, which is so expensive. It feels like I'm paying alimony. And like, just to be able to laugh about the fact that I am not, I can't go to the same grocery store that I could Yeah, felt cathartic.
0: Yeah. I remember reading somewhere seasickness and heartbreak uh, are two things that are absolutely m- miserable <laughs> when you're going through them, but they're funny from outside. Yeah. You know, like, cause, cause you know, Looking at it from outside You're like You're not going to die from this You're going to be fine Right There's, you're, out, From outside yeah. it's obvious Like this is fine You'll be alright You know We'll get there And you, you'll stop puking Or you'll meet someone or Whatever But when you're in it it feels like your whole world's falling apart. Yeah. yeah. Well,
2: and other, that's funny. That's funny. There well, on the some, other day, kind of, yeah. right. I took one of your bikes down to this river. And, uh, there was this little meditation zone by the river and yeah. there's prayer flags up above. I had my journal, had a big bag of mushrooms, ate some mushrooms, started to meditate, started sobbing, <laughs> laid down on the ground, like sobbing doing cold plunges in the river and then going back and laying down on the ground and i've had that thought i was like from the outside i look like such a fucking goofball right now and then i came back in here and i was clearly still tripping it was like i went through a breakup and then a global pandemic hit how is that not the funniest shit ever and i never really thought about that like what that is just so funny. Like the timing of this is just perfectly horrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty. It's funny when, when you see like a reflection, a global reflection of your personal crisis, right? It's like,
2: well, but there's also one, then this is something that I thought about when I was tripping down by the river the other day is that, um, you can connect to more than just your suffering. To think about all the other people that are in that same situation or in that same emotional frequency can make it feel more bearable because it takes the loneliness away.
0: Right, right. Even if you are isolated, your experience is shared by many people. I mean, a lot of people right now are going through, you know, to get concrete about this, a lot of people are going through this, Um, because they've spent the last couple of months stuck in a house with someone that they're not compatible with, but it was easy to ignore it when you both get up and go to work every day and you're busy and you know, you're doing your shit, whatever, and you're only spending an hour or two together in a day yeah, right? was,
2: we were great together for like 45 minutes <laughs> yeah we, I, we loved having coffee together and cuddling at, we didn't
0: know there was like an hour and a half yeah. cut off where everything became horrible totally. and now suddenly he's like oh i don't like you after two hours yeah so i think a lot of people are, are going through that and i then,
2: think i think even if you're in a uh, compatible relationship you need time apart to hmm. to come back to it and have it be healthy sorry i cut yeah. you off
0: yeah. No, I was just thinking about how, from your perspective, you know, feeling isolated and, and cut off from the world and grieving and all that. And then you look out and, and you, you know, you see the news or whatever, like everybody's feeling isolated. Yeah. Everybody's cut off. You know, you can't hug your mother. You can't like, yeah, there's a weird micro macro kind of fractal thing going on.
2: Similarly to hunting. Uh, and being close to death and then giving that food to friends and having it feed their life. I think that going through a breakup, although you can feel so lonely and isolated in one aspect of your life, it really deepens, the. It, for me at least, like it's deepened my relationship with people who listen to my podcast. My gratitude mm. yeah. for those people and those connections... Uh, my relationship with my dad has deepened. Like there's always this yeah. balance that happens, even if it's not visible in the moment. And relationship with yourself.
0: That- I think people don't understand how important it is in, you know, your young, the first part of your life, to spend time not in a relationship where it's just you. It's not you and her. It's not you in her eyes. It's not you. You know what people think about you because you're in with her you know what I mean it's just you and it's it's hard to know that it's it's I don't know it's like if you never taste water right it's always juice or beer or some flavored thing if you you need that baseline like this is water this is and fucking water tastes great because it tastes like nothing you know it's the absence of distraction in a way
2: yeah what I was talking about uh, a million years ago when I would j- jump out in the ocean and scream at the sunrise felt coincident with experiences that I've had surfing big waves and having and, and getting sucked down really deep and having to um, really force that conversation inside my head to be um one that was was good and yeah. Um, those, those are, I mean, it's, it's hyperbolic to say, but those are the only real experiences like there are in, in, in like those ones where you are just in that moment, whether it's like with that dying animal or deep underwater or screaming at the sunrise or just sobbing by yourself. Like that is what there is. And everything else, every other person, every experience you have is really just, Uh, A reflection of you you know and and when you get into those really intense moments it's a it's the most honest reflection
0: right yeah and those experiences fortify you in ways that you might not understand but there's something there's almost um I don't know how to say this, but there's like a, uh, you know, when I've gone through breakups, I've felt, and not only breakups, when when someone's died, who's close to me or, you know, any kind of grieving, uh, there's a deliciousness to it because I'm more alive than I was before. I'm more alive than when I'm just happy, go lucky, everything's fine. That's great. But when something, when a fucking thunderclap hits out of nowhere and you get knocked off balance, you're more alive, you know, you're it, the intensity and the, the fear and the, the, you know, the novelty, all that stuff. And so even when it's really bad, it's
2: like, okay, it's bad, but it's fucking great. It's really great. Cause people, this is real. People don't talk about that opposite side in yeah. breakups right? yeah. is that you, like I, I actually did have a chance to go on a trip directly after the breakup. It was literally like one week after yeah. I got invited to go to Morocco, uh, to give yeah, a talk out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Yeah. The, the Moroccan tourism board had funding to have an environmental speaker, go give a talk about plastic pollution. And I was like, the timing could not have been better, but, uh, there was you know, like, there was one time when I was out surfing this wave in Morocco spot has great waves and uh on the beach there are a lot of camels that are walking around and it's a pretty touristy place so there'll be these merchants that will try and get you to you know ride the camel or take photos with it and i had a horrible surf session all these moroccans were burning me i was out there <laughs> by myself yeah moroccans are very aggressive surfers and i went i i got back in my car it was super windy and there was these camels walking by i just started sobbing like no one in this whole continent loves me like it was like this is the fucking worst thing ever and then i'm like i need to get out of this spot so i went north up to uh this little this beautiful little town called Essaouira. Mm-hmm. um i've been there yeah, yeah. Es- esauera is, is this very um it's this old old town with castle walls and I was driving there the next day uh, through all of these argom uh, groves. Like, argom oil is, where it is uh, comes from this area. And I put on uh, a dead mouse, which is, like, electronic uh, music that you would hate. But I just started, like, bumping it full blast. With the windows down, there these argom trees around me. And then I just started, like, screaming with potential. Hmm. It was just this moment where I felt like I have no idea what is ahead of me right now. How exciting. Right. And that's... It's
0: an incredible wealth.
2: It's incredible wealth. And, and that's a part of these grieving processes that you know we don't talk about yeah. as often, but are just as real.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And if you can focus on that, it makes it all so much easier to you know, you're not withstanding it, you're savoring it, savor. There's a a song uh, by a guy I had on this podcast called Suffer Well, and he really gets into that. Um, I forget his name. He's South African. Maybe I'll play it here at the end. Uh, but it's a really beautiful song because he's like, hey, you're going to suffer. So what I wish for you is that you do it well. You suffer consciously, you know? All right. This has been Kyle Tierman. Suffering well uh, so far. Still thanks, all right. A- thanks, everyone. <laughs> uh, tell tell us. Kyle's got a podcast. You know what it's called? It's called the Kyle Tierman Show. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Couldn't think of a better name. It stuck. Uh,
0: it sh- you should have called it. Uh, who, what was your nickname?
2: Uma Thurman uh, show. Yeah, Uma Thurman, yeah, show. The Uma Thurman uh, show. You would have
0: got a lot more listeners right off the bat. Yep. You
2: know?
0: <laughs> yeah, and a lawsuit.
2: Yeah. If people want to check it out, I did a good episode recently with a psychologist named Dr. Rick Hanson called yeah. the Neuroscience of Lasting Happiness, and we talk a lot about suffering well.
0: Yeah. cool all right thank you very much kyle
2: thanks for having me wrap it up till next year (laughs) and i i will just to to finish this one off i will say that uh you have had a bigger influence on my life than just about anyone and you are a um truly generous person so thank you it's uh it's been a great it's it's just selfishness in disguise man You get all that Patagonia gear.
0: Exactly. I'm I'm wearing some right now. I yeah.
2: Should... No, seriously, man, it's been thank you. It's been cool.
0: Thank you. Let's keep going.
3: Stung like a bee But he said he could stand the training But he swallowed the pain Cause he wanted to gain All the things he wound up gaining And Dostoevsky said this about those With hearts that love and with minds that know The bigger you are that you care the greater the pain you'll have to bear and each of us must learn in our own way to silently relate to everything we hate because sure enough For everyone, the time will come for suffering to be done. And when it casts its spell, I hope you suffer well. Squeezing diamonds out of coal, it turns a mind into a soul. And Nietzsche's life was strange and dark, but what he said was on the mark that we'll survive our suffering by learning to see what it is. We must learn in our own way To silently relate To everything we hate Because sure enough for everyone The time will come For suffering to be done When it costs its spell I hope you suffer well Sometimes learn in our own way to silently relate to everything we hate cause sure enough for everyone the time will come for suffering to be done and when. Spell. I hope you suffer well